Hello, everybody. Normally, right now, I'd be welcoming you back to the Matt Madness Wrestling Podcast, but for right now, possibly one time only, I'm welcoming you for the first time to the Matt Madness Basketball Podcast. And that may seem out of place on this feed because it's usually about WWE, but I kind of wanted a break from it. And it is my feed, so I feel like I should be doing what I want with it. And I said on the show a couple weeks ago, I was going to do a show about the process. And with the Sixers season having just ended, unfortunately, I figured now was as good a time as any to do it. So I just kind of want to preface by saying I feel like I talk a little bit about the Sixers on Twitter. I've had a few threads about Ben Simmons' Rookie of the Year case or how good the Sixers actually were earlier in the season when people were ready to fire Brett Brown. Um, I kind of stay out of it because there are so many people doing such great work covering the Sixers and the process, such as the Rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast with Spike Eskin and Mike Levin, uh, the Triumvirate from The Athletic, uh, Derek Bodner, Rich Hoffman, and Mike O'Connor, even Kyle Newbeck, I believe, at Philly Voice. They're all doing an unbelievable job, and I have always felt like my voice may not necessarily be needed in this space, but I kind of gotten to a point where I've realized I'm constantly in discussions and sometimes arguments with family, friends, coworkers, strangers about the process. I constantly am reading and hearing misinformation about the process on sports radio and in national outlets like ESPN and Fox Sports. And unfortunately, I feel like most discussions aren't able to get far enough without interruption or interjection. And it, it keeps you from making, or it keeps me anyway, from making what I think are the most important points about the process. And really, I just want to kind of do my best to create a new starting point for all future process conversations, because I'm finished getting dragged down into the muck and arguing the same tired points. So one of the things I really want to do is try to provide context for what the process is, because I really think it is maybe the, the single most misunderstood, misrepresented, oversimplified, under-contextualized terms in the history of professional sports. And I think other teams are probably trying to emulate it, but they're doing it improperly because they don't fully understand it. And I think, most simply put, it was a rebuilding plan where Sam Hinkie and his staff had the end goal of acquiring top-level talent and building a program that perennially could be among the league's contending teams. Um, I, I think that they, they planned to do this basically by taking advantage of the way other league executives do business. As Sam Hinkie said himself, he wants to zig when others zag. So there were kind of a number of steps to the process that I think people don't fully think about, don't fully grasp, don't fully understand. They kind of see one thing and they don't want to see past that. So really what they wanted to do was 
a, a number of things. One, they wanted to strip the roster as much as possible in order to lose enough games to draft at the top. Um, that's pretty self-explanatory. That's kind of anybody who knows anything about the Sixers, even if they haven't paid attention to them since 2013 or 14, they know that's what the Sixers were trying to do, was they wanted to lose a lot of games and pick high in the draft. Um, now, one of the things that kind of got a lot of people upset about the process was that they wanted to commit to multiple years of losing in case it takes longer than hoped to find a cornerstone player. Because sometimes you end up with the number two pick and you get Kevin Durant. Other times you get the number two pick and you get Evan Turner. So just finishing with the number one pick or the two pick or the three pick, it doesn't guarantee you a certain level of player. Those players are kind of few and far between. There aren't enough of them for every team in the league to have one. There aren't even enough of them for half of the league to have one of them, really. Um, So the point of losing for multiple years was to have multiple chances to draft a cornerstone-type player. Um, So with, with competing in any way, shape, or form off the table for theoretically multiple years, it allowed them to shed salary and create space under their salary cap to take on bad contracts that won't negatively impact the Sixers at all in order to siphon assets from teams who may have been more poorly managed. Um, a team you know, doesn't have any room to trade for a player that they want or sign someone in free agency or maybe even sign some of their own players that are coming up on being free agents. So they have to get rid of salary. Well, that become, became something that Sam Hinkie could value because he could take that salary off of these teams' hands and be paid a pretty good price for it, sometimes a first-round pick. Um, another thing that they did was with the wide-open roster that they had, it allowed them room that almost no other team had to audition players who were more unknown in the hopes of finding one or two players that other teams didn't have the luxury of finding. And in the Sixers' case, those guys ended up being players like Robert Covington and T.J. McConnell. Uh, Basically, one entire phase of the process, or the first phase of the process, was just trying to give themselves the most possible opportunities of drafting a franchise-altering player or possibly acquiring enough high-level assets that they could then possibly use in a trade for a franchise-level player. So it wasn't solely through the draft they were going to find a player. It was possibly through trade. It was just basically whatever one Sam Hinkie felt he could make happen first. Okay, so with that pretty basic introduction of what the initial phase or initial point of the process was, I think it's really important to to kind of clarify that the point of the process wasn't solely about winning a championship because you can never, ever guarantee that no matter what you do. I mean, the Golden State Warriors haven't won every championship the last three years. LeBron James is the best player in the league. He's won three during his entire career. So there's no way you guarantee yourself a championship. 
the whole the point was really about perennially being in contention and sustaining that level, which really, if, if you really think about it, in a given NBA season, maybe three or four teams have a real chance to win the championship. And Hinky's goal was to get into that club of being one of the top three or four or maybe five teams that realistically has an actual chance to win the championship. So with that in mind, just competing for a championship, not necessarily winning, I took a look at the 68 NBA finalists since the Sixers last won a title in the 82-83 season. So of the 68 teams that made the NBA Finals, 57 of them were a top two seed in their conference. 84% of the teams were either a one or two seed in their conference. And then 64 were a top three seed in their conference. Of the four teams that were outside of the top three seeds, I don't know why I didn't write down what all all four of them were, but two out of the four, one was the New York Knicks in the strike or lockout shortened season. They did it as an eight seed and lost, I believe, in five games to San Antonio. I think it was 99-2000. And the Houston Rockets, I guess it was the 94-95 season. They won as a six seed, but they were the defending champions. So it's not like they were some upstart team that wasn't really elite. They had Akeem Olajuwon. They had won the championship the year before, and they repeated as the six seed. Um, and what what does it take to get into this elite club of teams that can compete for a championship? It requires elite talent. You have to have it. Uh, as evidenced by the fact that of 68 teams, 62 of them had at least one All-NBA player in the season they made the finals. So that doesn't even include maybe you didn't have an All-NBA player the season you made it, but they might have been All-NBA the year before or the year after. Um, And of those 68 teams, they had a total of 97 All-NBA players on the roster the year they made the finals. Uh, Of the 34 champions, 19 of them had the league MVP on the roster. 29 out of the 34 champions had a player receive MVP votes. Uh, Of those 68 teams, there were 136 All-Stars. 49 out of 68 NBA finalists had two or more All-Stars in the season they made the finals. And to even maybe take it a step further... 51 out of 68 had two Hall of Fame players or more on their roster. And every single one of the 68 teams had at least one Hall of Famer or one player that, according to basketball reference, has a better than 75% chance to be a Hall of Famer eventually. So we obviously have, we'll have two more finalists. We'll be up to 70 Uh, in a couple weeks. Unfortunately, the Sixers won't be one of them. But you're looking at either the Houston Rockets or the Golden State Warriors in the West. Obviously, we know how much talent are on those two teams. And then in the East, we have the Celtics who just beat the Sixers. I don't know if they have a future Hall of Famer on that team, but Jason Tatum looked pretty damn good for those five games in the series. And Jalen Brown... Again, don't know if he's a Hall of Famer, but he's a pretty good player. Al Horford, 
I can't say he's a Hall of Famer, but a pretty good player. And obviously in Cleveland, you have LeBron James, who's arguably, you could make the case, he's the greatest player of all time. So when you really look at it, you have zero choice but to get elite players on your team if you want to compete at the highest levels. And that was the really the ultimate goal of Sam Hinkie. And then once he reached that goal, the goal was to stay at that level for a number of years by giving himself opportunities to keep a stacked roster. So with the major goals of the process clearly stated, what exactly was the reasoning for such a drastic rebuilding plan? Well, that that part to me, I think, is what really gets lost almost as much as anything else. Uh, in 26 seasons since the Charles Barkley trade, this is including this year, the Sixers over those 26 seasons have a 414 winning percentage. They've made the playoffs 11 times in 26 years. Their record in the playoffs, 46 and 57. They've only been past the second round one time, and that was when they reached the 2000-2001 NBA Finals and lost in five games to the Lakers. A team, I think, that's beloved to many of us who are alive to see it, but I don't think anyone is really deluding themselves, myself included, into thinking they were really a championship contender. They just found some way to keep getting it done until they ran into a team that was just light years better than them. Um, now, if you take out the, the five peak years of Iverson, this isn't even Iverson's whole career. This is just his peak from the first five times the Sixers made the playoffs with Iverson. If you take those five years out, the team has a 374 winning percentage, and in 21 years since the Barkley trade, made the playoffs six times, won two playoff rounds. Now, you could argue that the process years, a 19-63 and 63 season, an 18-64 and 64 season, a 10 and 72 season, a 28 and whatever whatever it is 53 season. They those years really bring down the average. Well, let's take out the process years. That still leaves a 396 winning percentage, five playoff appearances in 16 years, and one series victory in the playoffs. And in the bottom quarter of the league in attendance over all those years, with, I believe, a five-year stretch in the 90s where they were one of the three or four worst teams in attendance. So, And those were teams that allegedly were trying to win. At least with Sam Hinkie and the process, it was clear, we're not going to win for a few years, we're going to strip everything down, we're going to build it up, and we're going to be better off for it. And I think there's really not much argument even to be made. They had their best regular season performance since that 2000-2001 finals team. They've had, and, and not to mention, they really had one star player who was kind of a flawed star player who you couldn't really build around. And now they have two possible well, one guy, Joel Embiid, is going to be All-NBA this year, whether it's second or third team. 
Ben Simmons, he won't be all NBA, but I know just based on reading different NBA writers, he will get votes for all NBA. Uh, he's going to get votes for the all defensive team. Joel Embiid will be on the all defensive team. There's two guys right there that are on the level of the types of elite talent you need to be competitive. It is the first time they've had two guys like that, two all-NBA caliber players since Iverson and a quickly declining Dikembe Mutombo in 2001-2002. And Iverson was, he still had a few really good years left, but he was never an MVP candidate again after that. Dikembe Mutombo was not even here that much longer. And these two guys are under 25 years old, have theoretically, you know, health permitting 10, 15 years left to be playing at a high level. We're just at the beginning of this stage with these guys. And the fact that the Sixers have not just one, but two players of this caliber says that mission one or goal number one of the process is complete. That was the most important thing was finding cornerstone players, finding franchise players. They have two that we know of already. Now, I do have some more thoughts and ideas about the process, what it was, what it wasn't, uh, what we might have seen or what we unfortunately never will get to see or find out. But I think this is probably a good point to get into some of the false narratives and misconceptions of the process. I feel like a good place to start with this is the teams that the Sixers were compared to. The Sixers were doing it the wrong way. Every other team was doing it the right way. The 2014 draft, just looking at the teams that were in the lottery and a few teams that should have been in the lottery but didn't have their pick. Uh, so that is, I believe, 14 teams in all. Obviously, Cleveland got the number one pick, got LeBron back, won a championship. Boston appears to be thriving uh, more than probably any of us wishes they were. But after that, you have the Milwaukee Bucks, who have trusted the results, all the way to 44 wins being their best season since then, and never getting out of the first round, and are currently on their second coach, and my guess would be They'll be on the third one soon enough. Uh, Orlando, we all remember them. They have not won any more than 35 games since 2014 and have not made the playoffs, are about to be on their fifth coach. Utah, I will put them pretty comparable to the Sixers. They've made the playoffs the last two years. They have some young, promising players, and I, I assume that they're not going anywhere. So congratulations to them. Uh, the Los Angeles Lakers, uh, no no more than 35 wins, which they had this year, have not made the playoffs on their second coach. I don't think Luke Walton is going anywhere, and they do look like a team that's improving, but instead of having their own lottery pick, the Sixers will have it. Uh, Sacramento Kings, who ended up swapping down in the draft last year because of Sam Hinkie will be losing their pick next year, whether it's to the Sixers or Boston, have topped out at 33 wins over the last four years, have not made the playoffs, have been through four coaches. Uh, Charlotte have made the playoffs once. Uh, 
and they lost in the first round. Denver has not made the playoffs, have been through three coaches. Minnesota made it to the playoffs, lost in the first round, have been through, well, they're on their second coach in that time. Phoenix have not made the playoffs. They were another poster team for building the right way, have not made the playoffs on their third coach. Uh, New Orleans have made the playoffs twice in that time, have won a single playoff round this year on their second coach, and that's with having a number one overall pick in Anthony Davis. They haven't been able to get past where the Sixers are right now. Uh, Detroit, everybody's favorite uh, team president and coach, Stan Van Gundy, had made the playoffs one time, lost in the first round. Now he's gone, and the New York Knicks have not made the playoffs, have not won more than 32 games, and have been through four coaches. So if you any way you look at it, even if obviously Cleveland has skyrocketed past what the Sixers have done in four years, Boston, I think this is going to be a rivalry for a while, but clearly they're ahead right now. Uh, and Utah, who I put on the same playing field. Other than that, nobody that was a lottery team in 2014 is any better off than what the Sixers are right now. So for everyone who said that other teams were doing it the right way and the Sixers were doing it the wrong way, it looks like we were right and you were wrong. And that leads me directly into my next point, which is the infamous losing culture argument that we've all heard for years and has been proven infinitely wrong uh this season especially and personally I've been in plenty of situations with horrible culture and in my experience culture isn't really dictated by the circumstances of the situation as much as by the people involved and I know this happens a lot in the armed forces and things like boot camp Oftentimes, the worst circumstances actually lead to the most camaraderie. And I think leadership is really a huge key when it comes to building and sustaining culture. And if you have a strong and nurturing leader who lays things out like expectations or goals properly, it really goes a long way towards building a positive culture, things like accountability, accountability both ways, where you have to be accountable to your superior, but your your superior also holds himself accountable to you. And Brett Brown has taken arguably the most difficult job in the history of professional sports and found a way to thrive. While everyone in the media was lecturing about losing culture, He was actually talking about building a winning culture. He was also actually doing it. He was building that winning culture while everybody else was upset about the losing culture that was going to be built. And while not everybody sees this positively, all you have to do is look at Markel Fultz on the bench in Game 4, how happy he was for TJ McConnell, for his teammates, and... That kid has every right to be miserable. He has every right to be upset. He has every right to be angry or not want to be there. 
and he is a part of that team. He feels a part of that team. He is happy with the success that his teammates found, and that alone tells you a lot about what Brett has built over his time here. And I just think it can't go without saying that Sam Hinkie deserves a ton of credit. Despite all the hand-wringing over how long the hiring process took, but he deserves a ton of credit for making the 100% correct hire in Brett Brown because there I don't think there's anybody who could have handled this situation any better. I had the pleasure of meeting him uh, as a season ticket holder, I believe, right before the 2015 season, and... He could not have been a nicer, more genuine guy, the guy you see in a press conference, the guy you see answering reporters' questions. That's who that guy is. He's unbelievably positive. He's unbelievably upbeat. He's unbelievably caring. And I think that he really, as much as Hinky deserved credit for hiring him, I believe that Brett Brown deserves a ton of credit for proving the fictitious losing culture argument completely wrong. And aside from losing culture, there is a segment that reduced the process to nothing more than losing on purpose. Uh, It was unfair to the fans. The fans won't ever come back. And another one of my all-time favorites, free agents will never sign here. As if any free agents were signing here anyway. The only free agent they signed that I can remember is Elton Brand after he ruptured his Achilles tendon. And he was never the same player again. Um, but these were some of my favorite arguments because they literally they literally took the most simplistic, least thought out arguments and acted like these were so important. Um, it was just silly to me. And... Now, losing was an aspect of the process, but it was done with a distinct purpose. Uh, But there was so much more going on than just them losing games. They were consistently winning trades. They were consistently stockpiling stockpiling draft picks. Uh, Not to mention, they were losing anyway before Sam Hickey got hired. They had exactly one winning season since Allen Iverson left. And that was a 35-31 and 31 record during another shortened season where they started 18-7, and seven, and most of the teams in the league spent the first half of the season trying to get their legs under them. The Sixers were a team that had been intact from the year before. 18-7 and seven start, 17-24 and 24 finish. They actually were on pace over the next 16 games to likely drop to a 41-41 and 41 record which would have had them at exactly four 500, about as mediocre as you can get. Um, and then after that year, they decided to be a little bit more bold. Sorry to the Phillies for stealing a catchphrase from them, but they made the trade for Andrew Bynum, which, as we all know, didn't work out. It set that organization back for years. They shed draft picks. They shed talented players for a guy who never suited up for the team. And if it hadn't been for the process, I'm, I, I have no choice but to believe they would have been a 30-35 to 35 win team 
for the next five to ten years, just spinning their wheels and spinning our wheels without any type of plan. At least Sam Hinkie came down, came in and decided, this is how we have to do this, this is how we're going to do it, and he put those wheels in motion. But to me, just stripping your team bare and then dealing with it later is way more unfair to your fans than having a plan, being honest about it, and then executing it to the best of your ability. Uh, and, And as far as the fans, it being unfair, them never coming back, from the time Iverson left until this year, they finished in the top half of league attendance one time. And I believe they were like 14th out of 30. So it's not even like they really were blowing the doors off the place with attendance. They just barely were in the top half of the league. And they were clearly in fourth place in Philadelphia out of the four major teams. And this year was the first year with a healthy team, with Joel Embiid starting the year and playing over 60 games, with Ben Simmons playing, I believe, all but one game. Um, They actually were third in attendance, which is their best mark since 2002, which was the year after their NBA Finals appearance. They were also third in merchandise sales. I believe I read that in a, maybe it was a Kevin Arnovitz piece this morning on ESPN. Um, They, so the, the city has been buzzing about them for months. I just had my, celebrated my 39th birthday over this past weekend. Almost every gift I received was in some way Sixers related. Um, and as far as players not signing here, J.J. Redick signed here, albeit for a ton of money, but he's still signed here. And two of the midseason acquisitions that people were touting for Brian Colangelo, Marco Bellinelli, and Ersan Ilyasova, they weren't traded for. They were bought out by their team, and they chose to come here and play for the Philadelphia 76ers, to play here in the situation that was built by Sam Hinkie before the Colangelos got involved. So already and very quickly, every one of these things kind of were proven categorically false within the course of this year. And granted, it remains to be seen who else will sign here. I don't know for sure that they're going to get an all-NBA-level player to sign here this offseason or next offseason or an all-star. We won't know that until it either happens or doesn't. But they are a destination team in a way that they've never been in my lifetime. And it's just one more thing that we owe thanks to Sam Hinkie and Brett Brown for. Now, another group of anti-Hinkie, anti-process arguments that I've heard a lot, uh, whether in my own conversations or you know things I've read or heard by national or local media, are the fact that they were lucky to get Joel Embiid, they really wanted Andrew Wiggins, uh, that anyone could have done this, that they should have picked Porzingis over Okafor, or they should have taken 
Giannis instead of Nerlens or Michael Carter Williams, and you know thousands of examples like that. So as far as luck, luck has always been and will always be a factor. I don't know how much the San Antonio Spurs are like the San Antonio Spurs that we all know if the year David Robinson gets hurt, if they get number two instead of number one, I don't know if they have the 15-year run that they had with Tim Duncan. Um, Hinky planned for luck being a factor. Hinky knew that even if he finished with the worst record three years in a row, he only had a 25% chance each year of ending up with the number one pick. And he also knew that even if he did end up with the number one pick, there wasn't necessarily going to be a franchise player that particular year that he might win the number one pick. So basically, the, the, the way I kind of, the, the analogy I use is, if someone told you you had to make a free throw or they were going to shoot you in the head, would you rather get two attempts to make that free throw or would you rather get ten? And Hinky's insistence on getting as many opportunities as possible to draft as high as possible were in order to mitigate the effect that luck would have on his rebuilding plan. Uh, because basically if he got two cracks at a top three pick and he missed on both of them, well, then they're done. But if he gets himself 10 chances at top 15 picks, if just one of them works out, which one out of 15 is not hard to do, then he's in pretty good shape. And if anyone could have done it, which anyone couldn't have, as evidenced by the fact that there are still so many teams who lose year in and year out and draft high and never get out of it. Sam Hinkie, in a very short time, was able to build something that drastically improved really quickly, probably quicker than a lot of people expected it to. Uh, And as far as the argument about picking all the right players, there's literally no one in the history of drafting that has a perfect draft record. And literally every team would be better off if they managed to always pick the best player available at every slot they drafted, but it just doesn't happen. There's always going to be a player in a draft who's better than, you know, the 10 or 12 guys drafted ahead of them. It, it just always happens. Um, it's an inexact science, and the fact that he came away with one superstar in Joel Embiid and put them in a position to come away with another one in Ben Simmons shows you exactly why his method was sound because he traded up to get Nerlens Noel in his first draft, who was the consensus number one overall player. He was injured, so he slipped to number six. And I think he hasn't gotten really the most fair shake in the last couple years, but let's chalk it up to that one didn't work out. Uh, Michael Carter-Williams... He drafted at 11. He won Rookie of the Year. That clearly hasn't worked out because he's barely hanging on in the league. But Sam Hinkie managed to trade him when his value was still high and get what ultimately has amounted to, we hope, is the number 10 pick, 
or possibly even the number one pick in the draft this year from the, the Los Angeles Lakers. Um, he missed on Julia Locafor. The funny thing about that one is most of the people who didn't like Hinky were the people who did like Jaleel Okafor. He drafted the guy most of those people wanted. That one blew up in his face, and then they want to hold that one over his head when that was the guy that most of them wanted. Uh, I know personally I didn't like him at Duke. I didn't want to see him here. He ended up here. I think Jaleel Okafor ultimately is what cost Sam Hinkie his job. Um, but despite the fact that some of these picks didn't work out, Two of them really did, and those two picks are why they are in one of the most enviable positions in the NBA. And the, the one thing I, I always go back to, and I know a lot of us do, is him answering the question of how will we know when all the right players are in place and the plan has worked. I'm paraphrasing, but that was basically the question. And his answer was, we'll all know. And he was kind of panned for it by some people. Other people kind of respected that answer because they understood it. And all I can say is we all know now that we have those two guys in place to build around for the next decade. And the 47 and 199 stretch that we had from, I guess, 2013 through 2015, the 19-win season, 18-win season, 10-win season, those years were far less painful than most of the previous 25 years because it was a series of sideways moves, trade one bad contract for another bad contract, trade one bad player for another bad player, or just have no talent on the roster at all. At least through those years, we got to see some young guys come through. We got to see a couple guys catch on. We got to, at the very least, enjoy lottery night and enjoy draft night because it was actually exciting as opposed to picking 12th or 13th where they would just sit there and pick where they were slotted. We had Sam Hinkie moving all over the draft board. We had picks in the top three every year. So those years for me were infinitely more fun than almost every year that preceded it outside of the Allen Iverson years. And I think that leaves me with this isn't so much a critique of the process as it is an annoyance post-Sam Hinkie where people are now moving the goalposts, where now the, the people who want to say the process didn't work or it wasn't worth it, oh, well, they haven't won a championship yet. They haven't won anything. Well, most teams in the league haven't won a championship Mostly, most teams in the league don't ever win a championship. So I don't, I, I don't understand how that is really an argument against the process because they haven't won a championship yet. This was the first year they had a mostly healthy roster with the young guys that they drafted intact, and they won 52 games, were the third seed in the East, won a round in the playoffs, and this is most likely the worst that they're going to be in the next five to ten years. And not to forget, back to that they haven't won a championship argument, and one of the reasons why that is just such a ridiculous argument is that in the NBA, in the 34 years 
since the Sixers last won a championship. 34 champions have been crowned. Those championships have been won by just 10 franchises. And in addition to the 10 championship franchises in 34 years, there are nine other teams that have even made it to the NBA Finals. So 19 teams have made it to the NBA Finals. It sounds like, okay, 19 out of 30 teams, it's pretty good. Well, just to compare, the NFL with 32 teams have 17 Super Bowl champions in 34 years, and 26 of the teams have appeared in the Super Bowl. Uh, Major League Baseball, there are 20 World Series champions, and there are 25 teams who have appeared in a World Series. And in the NHL, there are 15 Stanley Cup champions, and 24 NHL teams have appeared in the Stanley Cup Finals. So just further proof that being in the NBA Finals, that is the most exclusive club in professional sports. And Sam Hinkie's vision was just to be one of those teams that's in that club competing for that spot. And I think despite what anyone has said recently or within the last five years, they are so much closer to that club than almost every other team who wasn't already there when the Sixers process started. So I don't even know what leg there is to stand on at this point for saying that this hasn't worked or that this wasn't worth it or that this wasn't a good idea or even that it wasn't executed well because it has been executed well. And not only has it been executed well, outside of Boston, it's been executed better than any other rebuilding plan in the NBA in the last four or five years. And even with Boston, who's to say that five years from now, the Sixers haven't executed the better rebuild? I don't think the Boston Celtics are going to win a championship this year. I don't know if they do with Gordon Hayward and Kyrie Irving back next year. And maybe the Sixers do get one in the next five years. But whether they win a championship in the next five years or not is really kind of besides the point. Uh, as we are talking about the process, or I am talking about the process, I'm used to having co-hosts with me, and this has been a very different experience. But a lot of a lot of what happened with the process was about narrative. Some of it was real narrative, some of it was false narrative, and the process, I don't think, is really what anyone thinks it was or thought it was. I feel like it really was so much more than what it was made out to be. It wasn't just about being bad to get good. It wasn't just about drafting top prospects. It wasn't just about acquiring draft picks. It was really about consistently making the best possible de- decisions over a, an extended period of time and getting the team at the top and keeping the team at the top for as long as possible and leaving open as many avenues as possible to stay at the top. We have no idea. We basically just saw barely the tip of the iceberg on what I think Sam Hinkie's ultimate plan was. I think the process was just an easy thing to say, and it was easy to digest, and it caught on, and everyone thought that what Hinkie did in those three years was the process. But the process wasn't even really what Sam Hinkie was doing. It was just... It was way bigger than just building a team. And 
It's unfortunate we won't get to see the way that plays out. It's unfortunate that Sixers fans won't get to reap the rewards of having someone who is thinking so far in advance and who is thinking so deeply about everything. Uh, But the other unfortunate thing is I think his biggest mistake was something so simple, and that was he played no part in controlling or guiding the narrative of what he was doing in Philadelphia. He left such a huge void, which personally, it didn't bother me. I didn't need him to talk. And most people who supported him didn't need him to talk because GMs don't really say anything when they talk anyway. Or the current GM of the Sixers, they just lie when they talk. Um, But he basically left such a void that it allowed other people to tell such a bastardized story of what was actually happening with the Philadelphia 76ers. And that is ultimately what caused Adam Silver to step in, and that's what caused Jerry Colangelo to be inserted into the Sixers' front office. That's what ultimately forced Sam Hinkie out of the organization, and that is what ultimately led to Brian Colangelo now being the general manager. And could it get any more anti-process than just hiring your own son without even interviewing anyone else. And that leads me to my final point, which is the fact that the process is over. I keep seeing it brought up. Obviously, I love the trust the process chant. I love that Embiid has embraced the nickname the process. I love that Embiid credited Sam Hinkie in his press conference after game five. But the process is over because the architect of it is gone because the man who's in charge now does not have the breadth of thought that Sam Hinkie had. And one of the, well, two of the most incredible things that Sam Hinkie did were acquiring the Lakers pick for Michael Carter-Williams and acquiring the pick swap for two years from the Sacramento Kings and the unprotected pick in 2019 from the Kings for Luka Mitrovic and Arturas Gudaitis. And they also got in return Carl Landry, Jason Thompson, and Nick Stauskas, which didn't work out, but it was another flyer on another top 10 pick. There were little flashes that he showed that maybe he could be something, although he wasn't. But ultimately, it came down to the picks. And while the Sixers haven't actually gotten to use the Lakers pick yet, it turned out that that move was brilliant because a lot of people thought the pick would end up being outside the lottery because the Lakers were clearly going to sign a free agent and the pick wouldn't be that valuable. Well, unfortunately, the Lakers were so bad for this course of time that it ended up falling inside the protections inside the top five year one inside the top three, the last two years. And now it's unprotected. They're falling at 10th. The Sixers get it. If it ends up number one and the Kings, obviously perennial losers that pick, you know, I'd be shocked if that pick isn't in the top five, but the main reason why I say the process is over is because Hinky set the team up where they could be competing for a conference finals appearance 
or an NBA Finals appearance and still be getting high-level draft picks along with their own draft pick later in the first round. And what Brian Colangelo immediately did was get a little too trigger-happy, and he traded two assets, the number three pick in the draft and either the Lakers pick if it falls between two and five this year or the Kings pick if it's just better than the Sixers pick next year, which I'd have to assume it will be. He gave up two prime assets in order to, one, let Boston take the guy they were most likely going to take anyway in a draft where a lot of people believed there were 10 to 12 guys who had the potential to maybe become future all-stars. And while Markel Fultz was viewed mostly as the consensus number one pick, I don't know if he really was viewed as so significantly better than everybody else in the class that he was worth all that. Now, I, like everyone else, got all wrapped up in it. I was excited to get the number one pick. I was excited to get Markel Fultz. And I still do believe there's a chance for him to reach his potential. Unfortunately, when you're kind of grading a draft prospect, everything you're doing is projecting what this prospect is going to look like in two years, in five years, in 10 years. What do they have to do to get to that level? And not only is he not better than he was when he was drafted, he's actually taken a few steps back from where he was in college. So he still has to catch up to where he was to begin with, which is alarming. And then the fact that the guy Boston got just destroyed the Sixers in a playoff series as a 20-year-old rookie just makes it 10 times, 10 times worse. But it, the, the process for what it was is over. And a lot of people tried to say that what Brian Colangelo did was part of the process or was what Sam Hinkie would have done. And I just can't help but look at it like he would have valued the extra pick more than he would have valued the extra two draft slots to move up. So for that reason, I say the process is dead. For that reason, I say that it's over. For that reason, I say we will never know how much fruit the process would have borne. We'll we'll never find that out. But what I do know is the guy that's in charge now, I think is going to take a lot of luck now. And not the type of luck Hinky was dealing in where he was preparing for all that luck. I think we just have to deal now with either Brian Colangelo is going to get lucky for the next few years or he's not, and we're going to suffer for it. Um, I don't really know what else I can say other than I don't want to see people writing off this team as if they've reached their ceiling already because I've heard a lot of that and seen a lot of that. This team is very young. The experienced players they had – Most of them probably will not be back this year, and most of them did not contribute anything positively to the Boston series anyway. Um, But really, and I also don't want this to be misconstrued that this was going to be some watershed process moment where I was going to explain everything. Obviously, like I said at the beginning, there are a lot of people who have done a lot of great work at discussing this, but for me... I wanted to take a little break from WWE. 
I wanted to get a chance to sort of express this. And anyone that I've been discussing the process with over the last few years, I wanted them to be able to get to this point in the podcast and know we can now talk about it from this point. So anything I discussed on here, I'm probably not willing to discuss anymore, although I am a glutton for it, so I probably still will. But I'd like to come at it from, instead of having the same arguments, I'd like to have a deeper discussion or a deeper argument about it that's more meaningful and where different ideas can get shared and expressed. And I just also want to say that I will never, there's nothing anyone could ever say that will make me think the process wasn't a success, wasn't a brilliant strategy, and wasn't brilliantly executed. So Sam Hinkey, you died for our sins. Thank you. Brett Brown, you continue to carry the mantle. Joel Embiid, you do as well with your nickname, The Process, and with the fact that you won't let anyone forget about Sam Hinkie. And two fellow process trusters, please do not ever let this front office forget what the process was, who started it, who got us in this position, and ultimately, who deserves the credit for whatever success the Philadelphia 76ers have over the next decade. It is Sam Hinkie. It will always be Sam Hinkie. I won't forget. I know you won't either. Do not let them forget. I don't know if I'll do another one of these. Maybe some of my other process-trusting friends, maybe one of you can come on and do this with me when I'm ready to do it again. If you're interested, let me know. But again, if you made it this far, thank you for listening. It was a lot of fun. It feels like a relief to get some of this off my chest. Ultimately, what I wanted to do was shed a little context on the situation for anyone who might not be willing to look at the context of everything that Sam Hinkie did. And I do also just want to say thank you to Spike and Mike and the Rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast. I've told Spike this before. They made Philadelphia the most fun place to be a basketball fan outside of Golden State and Cleveland, where they've actually won championships in the last few years. Um, Thank you to the three writers from The Athletic, Derek Bodner, Rich Hoffman, and Mike O'Connor, for the unbelievable coverage that they've given us since they launched back in October. Uh, I know I'm a more well-informed fan than I would have been without their writing. And same goes for Kyle Newbeck. Wrote a ton of interesting pieces throughout the year. I feel like he grew a lot during the year. His writing got even better as the year went on. I look forward to anything he writes in this offseason and the next season coming up. And I guess that's it. So I am Ron Pashery, and maybe I will see you next time.